Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Women to Watch is an intimate look into the lives of prominent and influential women leaders from around the world and the challenges they faced on their journey. It's the real story behind her title. Join us every week to hear more stories about women from around the world and in your own communities at womentowatch.net. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco, and thanks so much for joining me. My guest this week is Sandra Lawrence, and Sandra is the associate publisher for Fun Times Magazine here in Philadelphia, and she is also the founder and CEO of ICAP, which stands for Intergenerational Communities and Alliances and Programs. I think I have that right. Um, For all things Women to Watch, you can visit our website at womentowatch.net. And be sure to check out our upcoming guest list to see who's coming up on the show. And lastly, we'd love for you to subscribe to our YouTube page at Women to Watch Media. That is W, the number two, W, Media on YouTube. So now I'm very excited uh, and honored to welcome to the show, Sandy Lawrence. Thank you, Sue. It's wonderful to be here. I'm I'm just delighted, excited, and delighted for the invitation. I am thrilled to have you. We have so much to talk about. Okay. Um, You know, as I was diving in and doing my homework on you, um, your your career has been incredibly um, impressive, and you're doing incredible things here in Philadelphia with many organizations. Um, But as we always do, I want to give the audience a little glimpse into your background and upbringing and where you came from that led you to the work that you're doing today. So um, I know that you were born and raised in West Philadelphia. Born and Um, raised. Born and raised and still there, right? Yes. Yes. So um, just describe for um, us the the neighborhood and your upbringing and, and what it was that your family instilled in you that I think really led to your passion for service. Okay. Well, as um, as we said, I was born and raised in West Philadelphia. I attended Overbrook High School. Everything I did growing up in my childhood was basically centered in West Philadelphia, in the West Philly Wynwood section of, of Philly. Uh, it was really interesting because back in the day, in my time, you it really was a city of neighborhoods. So if you were born or wherever you lived in West Philly, you pretty much your life was centered in West Philly. And we were excited when we would go to Center City or we would go, you know, some other part of the city. But basically, our whole life centered around West Philly, church, school, neighbors, family, everything. You know, people raised in the community for years and years and years, generations and generations. So it wasn't until later 
that, you know, times changed and transient living took place. So, but I grew up and I was privileged to grow up within a community that truly was a family-like community. And tell me a little bit about mom and dad and what they did. Okay. Um, Well, my parents were, I was in a two-parent family and two children, my brother and myself. My mother told my father she wasn't going to have any children until he bought a house when they were married. So they bought a house. And then she said, I want the boy to be the oldest and I want a girl. And God blessed her to go in that (laughs) order. That's it. My brother is older and I am the youngest. And uh, my parents were middle class uh, people. They weren't professionals. They were hardworking people. And that was it. We were just a very normal, traditional family in West Philly. Church, work, you know, vacations together. And in the summer, every summer, my parents would take us down south and we would spend time with our family in the south. And that's what we did. And then we would go to the seashore for a week with them. But most of the time, we spent a lot of our summers in the south, which was a whole different kind of lifestyle that it took a while for us to learn how to adjust to living in the south, even for the summer. Yeah. Tell me, what what was it about those trips that stood out for you when you were little? The reality of racism and the civil rights movement. When we would go south, we would go in caravans and the cousins and the fathers, we would all drive down in a different cars and it would be like in a caravan style. And if one pulled over, we all pulled over. Um, It was interesting. We packed lunches. We didn't stop at the bathrooms. That was really strange. We actually were allowed, if we had to go to the bathrooms, we went, we stopped on the side of the road and we would actually go with nature. (laughs) And we didn't know, I just figured, you know, oh, this child has to go again. I didn't know that it was purposed that way. They packed the lunch. We ate in the cars, which we were never allowed to do except when we were traveling south. And we would eat eat our lunch in the cars and things. And when we would pull over, then we would get in and keep on down the road because we didn't realize that when you go south, they had the water fountains for colored, the whites only. Uh, You had to be very careful if you went into restaurants and some of the gas stations could be you know, people without their white hood on their head, <laughs> you know, their daytime job. Excuse me. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. I was going to ask you what year, what, what. Um... So we're talking about the fifties and the sixties. Fifties. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, so we were part of that, but mm-hmm. we didn't understand any of that. Our parents really didn't tell us about that. So we yeah. just thought it was exciting to go and have lunch in the car and, and go to the bathroom, you know, outside the car and keep on driving on the road. We had no idea it was for our protection. Yeah. Now, that's interesting to me, Sandy, because a lot of what you do is education around the history. Yes. And, you know, I wonder why do you think your parents chose not to talk to you about it? Did they feel they were protecting you? Yes, they were protecting us. And the reality was, see, up north, racism was camouflaged. 
you know, it was a little more liberal here, but down South, it was a whole different world. They were much more passive as opposed to aggressive in, in their, you know, living style. So we would go, we would have to be careful if we went to the movies, we went upstairs in the balcony. We didn't know about that because here we could just go to the movies. And when they went into the stores, my grandmother and my aunts and them would always have my brother and I wait outside. They're like, oh no, you don't need to go in with us. Because if someone was ahead of us and they happened to be, or we were ahead of a white person, and I'm thinking, well, why are you waiting on them? I was here first. And you just didn't do that, yeah. <laughs> you know? So we were like, oh God, we're getting them in trouble. So they just kept us outside and we told them what we wanted and they brought it out to us because we didn't understand the order of how things were. Okay. So when you would come back to Philadelphia from these visits, um, and I'm sure that had an impression on you. Um, did that filter into your own aspirations as a young girl to go into education? In a way it did. But in the reality, once we went south, it was very rare that we ever encountered a lot of white people. Our families were very protective in the town and the community. So we really didn't engage with them a lot. The church was black. I mean, if they went to the store, but you're talking about South. So they grew everything. It wasn't a lot that they needed to do in terms of going out other than gas stations or something like that. So we really did not encounter it on a regular basis because they knew the safety net. They had a safety net. And they stayed within that safety net as much as possible. And when we would come back, now it was interesting. When we would come back home, because South, you say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And my father, who was raised in Virginia, he left early and joined the Navy because he wanted to get away from, you know, the South because of how it was. And when we would come back home, we would start saying, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. My father would have a fit. He was like, you don't have to, ma'am. You don't have to, sir. I told you yes and no was enough because that meant more to him in terms of what he had to do and submissiveness when he was growing up. Wow. It was yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. To to the white people. And then it was yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. To everybody, you know, even within their family. But that was something they had to say. It was a form of submission more so than respect. Yes. That's so interesting. Sandy. Yeah, and, it, and was. it was. It was really strange. Yeah. How it became kind of a trigger for your father. Yeah. So we had to deprogram. From that. And, and I don't know, you know, we our elders. We do now say, sir and ma'am, you can say that with respect of your elders because times have changed. But like I said, down there, it was really a combination to respect your elders, but it was more or less designed to do that because that's what you had to do in submission or passive, you know, action when you encountered uh, white people. So it it was just a whole deprogramming. And it was interesting. So my brother and I were young, not radicals so much, but we had the Afros. We, the last poets, we liked poetry. We were doing spoken word and all of that early on. And my parents had to adjust to us being part of that as opposed to just being passive little children with, you know, you know, they're like, uh, my parents' friends used to say, 
why does your daughter always wear African garb? She wasn't born in Africa, was she? <laughs> you were doing whatever that gender, every generation mm. does it differently. And yes. Thing. Yeah. And that was the times and that's what you wanted yeah. so to do. The older people, it was an adjustment for them, mm-hmm. you know. Uh so it, it made it made a big big deal. It was a very big deal. And I didn't know that. It was very subtle. So as I grew older, I began to say, hmm, I want to teach children. Like our school, in school, in our elementary school, we would get used books, textbooks, right? In Philly. And we would always have these names in them. And we'd get textbooks from other schools because the inner city schools got the used textbooks from the suburban schools. We talked about that when you yeah, were in yeah, yeah. So you know, so those things began to register in my brain. Yes, you know, and uh, so as we grew older, and my my high school was maybe forty percent, basically Jewish, and sixty percent African American when I was graduating. But my mother went to that high school, and it was like maybe five percent or two percent black and. She was one of them and the rest were all, it was a very Jewish um, school. Overbrook was basically uh, Jewish in that community was largely Jewish. And as they filtered out over the years, I think my high school year of 70 was probably the last year where it was almost an equal balance. You know, after that, I think there were very few um, from the Jewish or the even the white community that went to Overbrook. After that, it was very few. Now yeah. tell me, um, you, you went to Penn State. Yes. What what made you choose Penn State? <laughs> you, well, my parents had two children in college. My brother was in college a year ahead of me at St. Jude's. And he says they had two kids in college at the same time. And my parents were middle class. They were not high income. We were just middle class, typical family. So their thing was, whoever gave you the most money, that's where you go. <laughs> That's a good move right there. <laughs> so I didn't have the option to go to a HBCU, a historically black college. I, I didn't have the option really. I had to go to the school that gave the most money. And, and Penn State gave me the most money. And it was also to go away because my father was like, you need to go out into the world because we were self-contained in Philly. West Philly, whatever. So he's like, no, you do need to go away because I had an opportunity to go to Temple or Penn. And he's like, mm, you need to go away. Yeah. But actually the good thing was Penn State did give me the most money. How was the football team when you were there? Well, <laughs> it was good. Girl, they were always, you know, they were always a, a good football team and still are. But, you know, we called it Happy Valley. And yeah, it was I called think- Happy Valley. And I don't know whether the white kids, the students called it Happy Valley, but we called it Happy Valley because you went up there and there were so few blacks and it was like fresh air from the city, right? Fresh air. You had, you know, they had agricultural college there. So you had milk from the farm and everything was fresh. And it was like, because it was a whole different world than here. It was really a whole different world than what we were accustomed to. Now you could not go into the stores there and be black without knowing you were going to be watched. So you, you wouldn't go in unless it was two of you any more than that. You didn't go in and you knew you were automatically going to be watched, you know, which even here in Philly, when I was raising my son, we taught him 
when he would come after school, he'd come down to the job on Chestnut Street to see me. I was working the adoption center then. And we tell him, look, you and your friend, don't go in any stores unless you're buying something. As a matter of fact, don't go in the stores. And if you do, only go in two together, stay together and touch nothing except what you're buying because they will follow you. Plus they were young kids. So they're going to follow you anyway, white, green, or purple when you go in a center city store. But it was in particular, it was for them, you know? So you had to, I had to instill in him certain things that I thought left years and years ago, but it was still in existence. The subtleties of protecting yourself it was necessary when he learned to drive. I had to teach him, you stop. If you get stopped, keep both hands on the wheel. Don't move until they tell you, tell the officer exactly what you're going to do. If you're going to reach for something in the glove compartment, tell them beforehand, ask them, is it okay to move your hands from the steering wheel and all of those kind of things. That's what you have to teach them for their driving lessons. Is that weird? That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's awful. But you know, and, and now we're doing it again. It, it never stopped. We really never stopped. But those were lessons we had to protect them, you know, to prepare them for something to happen. You're, you're talking about your son. So I'm going to jump ahead. I wanted to share this quote. You said, I believe that we must raise our sons to save our men. Absolutely. And that's a powerful statement. I wonder if, what does that mean to you and, and how are you, um, Tell me about Rasheen. Okay. Um, I had at my adoption agency, we were the seventh adoption national adoption agency that was black in the country at the time in the 90s. We were the only number seven in the whole country. And when we created the agency, it was to um, prayerfully find black families for black children, boys, black boys as boys were not a positive thing in the community. They were not viewed as girls were. So it was very difficult to find homes for even healthy black babies or black boys. And we did toddlers, babies, older children and all, but it was just a bad rap for boys just because they were boys and they were black. So the whole negative image around the black male carried all the way down to the infants. So I thought it was necessary to come up with something like that. So it was like, we got to raise our sons, you know, to save our men. And it was very important to do that because um, the prison system, that was my way of saying, let's raise them so they won't wind up a product of the prison system. And that's what that was for. So if we took the responsibility of really, you know, raising the esteem of boys, the, the esteem level for boys was much different than it was for girls because they were boys. When people saw a black boy, they thought of him as a man. And when they saw him, that boy, that boy was like, oh, he's a man. He's a black man. That that negativity image of that, that carried over even at the poor boys. What is working today, Sandy, when in, in the work that you do with young people? Um, what kinds of things are you seeing that's changing that perception and what do these young boys respond to when when you're talking to them well history 
We're teaching our stories. There's more opportunities now since the civil rights movement. There's more equality opportunities that weren't there before. You know, they're seeing you can be more than a sports player. You can be a scientist. You can be a doctor. You can be a lawyer. You can be all of those things. And it was not as hard a battle to fight to enter those professions now as it was years ago. So he actually, my son went to an historically HBCU college and um, that was like passing him on for cousins and aunts and for the rest of the people in our community to raise him. And that's why I liked HBCUs because they finish raising your child for you. He's protected and surrounded by the culture, you know? So it was very important to do that. So I'm very into culture. I'm very into needing to tell your story. I'm very into the need to know our history. Our children, unfortunately, and we're dealing with that today, in today's time, what with trying to not allow African-American history or Black history, because it was not just African-American history, it's also history of Black and brown people and African people and things, to let them know that we weren't born slaves. We were enslaved. But the history, the way it was taught, all they saw about Black people in the history books were they saw us as slaves. So what, what they taught us, that sticks in their mind. So unless someone is teaching them the truth, you know, that they came from kings and queens and, and that it wasn't, um, when I was growing up, Tarzan movies. You know, Tarzan, King of the Jungle. You know, those are the kind of movies that we had. We didn't have positive movies when I was growing up. Not a lot for Black people. You know, we've come a long way. Oh, sure. You know, but, yes. but we still have so much further to go. And unfortunately, yeah. we're going backwards a little bit. You know, having to fight for the right to, you know, Black history should not just be once. It's everybody's history. It's everybody's oh, history. Human history is... Yes. Is human history. Yes. Um, we have to go into our first break, Sandy. When okay. we come back, I want to talk about um, the mental health community work that you're doing and, um, you know, just all of, of, again, a little bit more of what you're seeing, what's working and why or how we, can we get people to not be so reluctant to go and get that health yes. uh, work that they need? Okay. Um, Stay with us for a beautiful spot from one of our sponsors, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'll be right back with Sandra Lawrence. We are CHOP, and we can't wait to show you around. We're the nation's first children's hospital. Now, a care network with more than 50 locations that continues to expand. Three state-of-the-art research buildings with 1.5 million square feet of space. We have grown from 12 beds 165 years ago to nearly 600 beds and one of the best children's hospitals in the world. We have a level one trauma center, 11 floors of patient units, more than 20 operating rooms, first-of-its-kind delivery unit for babies with birth defects, a separate cardiac operative and catheterization suite, and places to learn, like our internationally recognized simulation center. 
We have trained generations of leaders in the field of pediatrics. We are world leaders in medicine, surgery, and science. One of the top recipients in NIH funding for pediatric research. In this building, pioneers in CAR-T therapy, mitochondrial disease, brain tumors, hyperinsulinism, and other rare diseases. Here, groundbreaking work in fetal surgery, genetics and genomics, and neurology. In our newest building, leaders in social determinants of health, clinical informatics and epidemiology, autism, trauma and injury prevention. Our patients come from every state and 115 countries. Meeting these challenges requires the best and the brightest. We are passionate about pediatrics. We are motivated to make a difference in the world and in our community. We are a team. We are CHOP. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Do you stream on a Roku, a Fire Stick, Google TV, or Apple TV? Now you can watch 6ABC 24-7 with the 6ABC Philadelphia streaming app. Watch Action News Live. In the big story on Action News. Plus special programming, breaking news, and severe weather updates. Tremendous amounts of rain. Always on. Always the news team you trust. Watch 6ABC 24-7 on your streaming device. Search 6ABC Philadelphia and start streaming today. Hello, and welcome back to the show. I'm joined this week by Sandra Lawrence, and uh, Sandra is the founder and CEO of ICAP. Uh, Just before the break, we were talking about, uh, well, I wanted to ask you about this uh, initiative, community initiative that you're involved in that really um, is directed towards mental health. And we've seen a rise um, specifically because of the pandemic, I would say, so many trickling effects of that. Um, Who do you serve and how do you get people, particularly men, I think men are more apt to not admit to um, having those types of issues than women are. Um, What what are you doing to to get them to, to seek help? Well, first, before we do that, it's wonderful, that commercial, because Now, today, I get so excited because I see people, professionals that look like me. And and the wonderful thing is it's so different now to have commercials like that that show everybody, black, brown, white, that, you know, they look like me. And and that's so important to do that. that. 
spot. Every time I watch that spot, I get chills. Mm. I just think it's so beautifully done. But you're right, because media is incredibly influential, especially for young people. Yes. So we're definitely seeing positive change yes. there. And that makes a difference even with mental health. I think basically Black people or African-Americans or people of African descent, because it's not just African-Americans, it's those from the islands, those from <clears throat> the motherland or Africa itself, the continent itself um, that are here. We just aren't comfortable with going outside of our family or even letting people know or letting even our family know if there's something going on with us because we deemed it as a weakness that we can't solve. It's something that, you know, we just need to keep a secret. But the interesting thing is now you don't have to keep secrets because it's the secrets that eat you up. Mm -hmm. It's the secrets that cause the heart attacks or the nervous breakdowns and all. Once you're able to let it out and talk about things, it makes a tremendous difference. And now that we have 988, um, we're able to now have an option. We can call up this federal national phone number and actually speak to someone and not be embarrassed or ashamed. There's no cameras when you call that number. You know, they don't know whether you're black, white, green, or purple until you, unless you tell them. But the point is you can talk to someone and let it out and not feel that they're judging you or that you're going to get in trouble, lose a job or, you know, or that your family will look at you differently and see that as a weakness as opposed to you being strong. And I think now that it's necessary to do this now because there are so many people hurting so much. And it's yeah. not just the abuse of the murders and other things that are going on, um, but cancer and, and sickness, or even just your self-esteem, you know? And after the pandemic, with isolation, there's loneliness, there's depression. And some people just couldn't be self-contained like that. And it kind of had some people, you know, they just couldn't handle it. So you need to be able to release and talk about it. And 988, so Fun Times Magazine has with the Night Linfest uh, New Transformation Fund, we were able to go out and actually advertise 988 and to talk about that, to let them know if you're angry, if you're stressed, that's not a 911 call. You know, this is a call for your mental health for your peace of mind, which has nothing to do with being physically endangered. You know, exactly. yeah. yeah, suicide is prevalent. Everything is prevalent and 988 helps. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I, um, I think it's important that people understand, you know, our brain is an organ just like any other part of our, our body. And the people I think that are notable, influential, who are being very brave and coming out and sharing their own stories of, of mental illness are having a big effect as well. Particularly yeah. the, you know, the athletes that are yeah. presented as so strong. And um, so yeah. the, the men that are athletes that all everyone knows and they say, wait a minute, you know, you know, my life is not perfect. 
And that's so important, you know, especially in the black community, because maybe less than 25% of the black community actually seeks help, professional help. One, for years we didn't trust it, you know, and now it's you can seek help. There are professionals that look like me. Mm-hmm. There are professionals, even the ones that don't look like me, that have been culturally sensitized in their training to be able to accommodate and talk with people of all cultures, you know, and, and that's so important. So it's it's really hard, but we have to make sure that our community knows that 988 is the number to call if you need help. And then they'll give you resources or referrals if you need it beyond that. But it's it, it helps when you have a bad day, you know, and you have some form of depression, you may need to just talk to somebody. You can call that number and just talk to somebody. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. what we're doing. 988. 988. I, I will make sure to share that. Okay. Because um, I didn't know about it. I did not know about that before I met you. Um, okay, let's talk about women for a minute. Um, okay. And that's what, you know, this show is all about. And you were inducted into uh, BOSS, BOSS, yes. which was founded by Sandy Williams. And yes. it talks about women's superpower. Yes. If I were to ask you, what what is that? What, what do you believe women's superpower is? It's the ability to find yourself, develop your gifts that God has given you and to make a difference, to make a difference in this world and to bring your gifts to fruitation so that you will make a difference. Yeah. So how, this is what I think, and we talk about this on the show a lot, finding why you are here, your purpose, your calling can be very, very difficult. Yes. And right. So you have to ask yourself the right questions. So what questions do you think a a young girl or a woman can ask herself to get closer to her? Why? Can I do it? Has anyone else done it before? Is it something realistically that I can do? And will anybody support me while I do it? And that's what the boss women, they support each other. And, uh, you know, you have sisterhood organizations on all levels. And they do that because the sisterhood is now, like we talked about for years, they had the brotherhood. But there are a lot of sisterhoods, the bonding of women together. And in particular, my bonding with Black women together, young women, we reach back and we pass the baton to them. We help them nurture and encourage them to reach higher heights than even we did. You know, growing up, it was the thing, like my parents said, you have to do one step more than me. So you go to college and you expect your children to go to college. If you went to college for a bachelor's, you expect your children to go and get a master's. And if your children go to get a master's, they expect their children to get a doctorate. You know, but if you go to everybody has to go to college. And if you don't go to college, there's a specialty school. Everybody gets educated with a degree, an electrician, everybody. Plumbers, they all get certified. So that was about it. Certifying you in your gift. Yeah, it's it's um, it's so important, too. And I think young people need to know they don't have to. Let's say they can't afford to go to college or for some reason it's not a good fit for them that. 
they don't have to. If, right. if it's right, it depends on what their aspirations are. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you, Sandy, you're a teacher, a speaker, an author, um, a writer. In those realms, where which one of those are you doing where you feel the most joyful? Well, I was a teacher. I loved teaching, but then the politics of the educational system didn't allow me to just teach, you know? So I left teaching to become a social worker to deal with all the issues that the children were bringing into the classroom that really were their lifestyles, their home environment, whatever. And I said, well, I'm going to help deal with that so that teachers can, you know, then just teach. And so I became a social worker working with children. Then I became a social worker working with adults. And my ending before retirement, I was working in the geriatric with seniors, with actual seniors. So I've covered the whole piece. But um, it's so important to be in a helping profession. That, that's how I was raised. I was raised to be in a helping profession. So that's it. You know, social workers, we have our own armor. We're armor bearers, just like teachers. So that was very important to me to do that. Has there been, has there been anyone in your life other than mom and dad that has been a mentor for you? You're, you're a mentor for many, many people. Has somebody, you know, who, who is someone in your life that impacted you in a significant way? Oh God, I have so many. I think, um, Chaplain Vernell Brown, she passed, but she was a chaplain and she encouraged me. I have a lot of sisters, the sisterhood bond. So many women encouraged me, men encouraged, the brotherhood encouraged. My brother is probably my biggest uh, supporter. He sees me as this person that can do all these wonderful things when actually he was the person that always did the wonderful things, you know, and I followed in his footsteps. You know, but um, yeah, and I also think because I'm also in a black book club, I love reading and I'm in a black women's book club and we read black women authors. And I think Maya Angelou, uh, Toni Morrison, when I think about the writings of these people and what they inspire and ignite in me, uh, that, you know, writers have a way of being um, mentors in a way. They support you. That's you know, true. Either nonfiction or fiction, but they, you know, they do that. So those are kind of mentors that I think of as well. Yeah, they get you thinking about things that you yes. might not have had you. Is there, do you have a favorite book? That's, I know you must have read. There are many, so many, many favorite books. books. I just have too many favorites. I don't know if I have a, a, a favorite per se, but I have a favorite author. And Tony Morrison is probably my favorite author. Wow. Right now. So I love Tony Morrison's books. Maya Angelou, Octavia Butler. I mean, you know, I just I just love reading and I just love them all. I don't think I have a special per se, because each one is a different yes, technique different and a different lessons. point. Yes. Yeah. Um what you seem very grounded. And, and wise and in search of um, helping others always. Is there something, what keeps you up at night? What do you worry about? What Where does fear creep into your life? Well, I tell you, 
you know, Susan, now I'm a deaconess as well at my church, but I have always lived by the mantle. If I could help somebody along the way, then my living is not in vain. And that's it. And I go to sleep peacefully at night because once I pray, Lord, protect and watch over all those out there in the world caught up in whatevers, you know, and you go through that list and then I pray for all the people that need praying for and my personal prayers, I sleep. You do. I sleep. You know, I am so grateful that he allows me to safely go to sleep. And I sort of, I'm real happy that I'm one of the winning people that I wake up. You know, that's true. I'm grateful. You know, I'm grateful every morning. Thank you, Lord, the breath of life. One more day, one more day to serve him because you have to be. We're only here to serve. That's it. We're here for service. You know, I think people were created for service and we have to serve others and be kind to others, but help others along the way. So my living's not in vain. And that's very important to me, whether I'm teaching, whether I'm doing social work, whether I'm with my friends, whether we're, you know, helping at a homeless shelter, whether I'm working with the food pantry, whatever it is, whether I'm working with teenagers. I also have a program called Bad Girls, and I haven't done that for a while, but that's part of ICAP. Okay. Bad Girls stands for Born Again Virgins. Oh, wow. That's a big initiative. That's a big initiative. Yeah. That's also preparing young people, but it also specializes in working with, if you're separated, you're single and older, you're widowed, divorced, you know, it takes a while to come back and see your own esteem because you've circled your whole life around your relationship. So you need to be able to look in the mirror and you look and say, do I look pleasing? for me and God, as opposed to, do I look pleasing for man, you know, for that man or for a man or just for men. So it's really helping you develop your own self-esteem again and and define that. Yeah. That's really, really important for young women. Um, And older. And older. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you believe in the adage that in order for you to serve, you have to serve yourself first so that you are well and whole to, to service others. And, and do you Absolutely. do that for yourself? Absolutely. That's why I belong to the different organizations that give that build me up and hold me up. Because I they, you know, I have to do that in order to go out and be strong for others, you have to be strong for self. Just like when you fly in a plane and they tell you, you know, they drop the mask, you put the breathing mask on you first. So then you have, then you're able to live long enough to help somebody else. You know, and that's exactly the same thing that we have to do in life. What are you working on just today, as we sit here today? What are you going to do after this interview is over? Well, after this interview is over, I just did a workshop because we do workshops on healthy living and dying. You know, it's called, yeah, we call the talk. Yes, you know, so, I, I wanted to ask you about yeah. that. And did that spur from your care for your yes. parents? And because I experienced hospice caring for both my parents. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was the most amazing 
situation to really go through, to, to go through to that end with them. It was a special relationship and a special bond. And um, so I actually do. I, I go and you have to get your affairs in order. And so many people do not have their affairs in order. And that doesn't matter what educational level you're on or not. We put it off because we don't want to think about death. Mm-hmm. You know, but as my great grandmom used to say, baby girl, if you born, you show sure enough, show sure enough, going to die. And those are the two things you definitely will do. What you do in between will count. <laughs> you know, so that we might, yeah, yeah, that's it. So, you know, we're not prepared. So we really do these workshops to prepare people to have the talk. What are your wishes? Tell your family and loved ones, you know, what your wishes are, you know, so that they'll know. Also, get your wills and your powers of attorneys and your living wills and your advanced directives, all those things. We try to inspire people to want to go and get their affairs in order. Did you, did your parents, did you know what their wishes were? Or did you learn from going through that, that it was something you wanted to talk about? My daddy was always healthy, never sick, right? You never would thought, and my mother always had some minor health issues and then she had cancer. She was a survivor, over 25 year cancer survivor. And so she always had something, something going on. So you never thought that your daddy who never had problems got his checkup once a year, you know, the whole bit. And he was the one that got sick first. So we weren't prepared. He wasn't prepared. We weren't prepared. So, um, and he wasn't prepared. We didn't have POAs. We didn't have any of that stuff for him. You know, so I had to do that kind of at the last minute, you know, those few months before he passed, we had to get his affairs in order. Yeah. You know, and I said, oh, my God. So that's yeah. what happened. Then my mother's wasn't in order because we always figured she'd die before him anyway. So it would be him and then it would be us, the children getting the air. Pro- so, you know, we we weren't prepared all the way around. So I prepared them and then I wound up preparing me because I'm yeah. like, oh. You know, we don't think about right? it. Yes. It's yes. children. It really is. Yes. It alleviates um, some of that stress. So, um, Sandy, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. You are such a light in the Philadelphia area. And uh, I wish you continued success as you just help hundreds of people. Um, and I appreciate you coming on the show to talk about your life story. Thank you, Susan. And thank you for what you do, because women to watch, you know, it's good to have a show for women. Again, you're raising the esteem of women because I you're here so. talking about women. So I thank yes. you so much for what you do. Thank you. Thank you right. so much. Uh, stay with us as we go into our, our last break. You'll see a spot from Penn Community Bank. We'll be right back. From Philadelphia to the Lehigh Valley and everywhere in between. For 150 years, Penn Community Bank has been a part of your neighborhood. Helping businesses start. Supporting families as they grow. And staying connected to the people and places that make this region special. It's who we are and where we're from. Penn Community Bank. Here we are and here we grow. Do you stream on a Roku, a Fire Stick, Google TV, or Apple TV? Now you can watch 6ABC 24-7 with the 6ABC Philadelphia streaming app. Watch Action News Live. And the big story on Action News. Plus special programming, breaking news, 
and severe weather updates. Tremendous amounts of rain. Always on. Always the news team you trust. Watch 6ABC 24-7 on your streaming device. Search 6ABC Philadelphia and start streaming today. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thanks so much for tuning in. Um, Next week, I'm going to be sitting down to speak with Alexis Jones. Um, Alexis has had an amazing life story. She is a speaker, an author, an activist, um, and also a contestant on Survivor. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, Thank you to Helm Creative, as always, for producing the show and all of our watch team members and corporate partners. Have a great week, everyone. We are CHOP, and we can't wait to show you around. We're the nation's first children's hospital. Now, a care network with more than 50 locations that continues to expand. Three state-of-the-art research buildings with 1.5 million square feet of space. We have grown from 12 beds 165 years ago to nearly 600 beds and one of the best children's hospitals in the world. We have a level one trauma center, 11 floors of patient units, more than 20 operating rooms, first of its kind delivery unit for babies with birth defects, a separate cardiac operative and catheterization suite, and places to learn, like our internationally recognized simulation center, We have trained generations of leaders in the field of pediatrics. We are world leaders in medicine, surgery, and science. One of the top recipients in NIH funding for pediatric research. In this building, pioneers in CAR-T therapy, mitochondrial disease, brain tumors, hyperinsulinism, and other rare diseases. Here, groundbreaking work in fetal surgery, genetics and genomics, and neurology. In our newest building, leaders in social determinants of health, clinical informatics and epidemiology, autism, trauma and injury prevention. Our patients come from every state and 115 countries. These challenges requires the best and the brightest. We are passionate about pediatrics. We are motivated to make a difference in the world and in our community. We are a team. We are CHOP. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.